Second Corinthians chapter 2, we're looking at the last verse, but let's get a running start. Let me remind you if you were here on Sunday or let you know what you missed on Sunday. Sunday, Paul painted a great picture of the way that he saw his ministry. Well, the way he saw ministry in general. If you were here, you remember he spoke of a Roman triumph parade. A Roman triumph parade. Look with me at verse 14. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. He said, Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. He was actually talking about this triumphal parade. This was a parade that celebrates the victory of a great general in the, the Roman army of a foreign land who would go and he would conquer a land and he would bring back all of the plunder and all of the uh, enemy troops and they would have this huge celebration. This was the picture that Paul was painting of Christ, the victorious general, that he had gone, had come to this world, the enemy's territory, and taken captive, taken back those of us who uh, were taken in by the enemy and he rescued us, he redeemed us. But Paul paints this picture of Christ being this victorious general in all of history now for 2,000 years has been a victory parade. Um, This was a huge deal in Rome. In this huge procession, if you were camped out in Rome back then and you saw a triumphal parade, you would see all of the captive uh, Romans, all of your fellow countrymen that had been liberated by the general. You would see all of the enemies, all the enemy forces that had been captured, You would see all of the booty that had been plundered and you would see all of the army, your fellow Roman citizens who had been victorious. And somewhere in that parade, perhaps between the Shriners clowns and the Trojan high school marching band, were the pagan priests that were waving censers that had incense in them. Look at verse 14 again. Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one we are the aroma of death leading to death and to the other the aroma of life leading to life. Paul says, We are like those priests waving the censers. He says, we are a fragrance to everyone that we meet. To the winning side, we are the smell of sweet victory. To the losing side, we are the stench of death. Now, we went over that at length on Sunday. I won't make you relearn that, but if you're interested, you can get the the CD from Sunday or go to the uh, website and download it. Basically, what we learned was that when other Christians, other captives who've been redeemed get a whiff of you, man, they love it. It's it's the sweet smell of victory. But when those uh, the enemies of Christ get a whiff of you and your righteousness that you have in Christ, it's the stench of death. But Paul left off with the question at the end of verse 16 that I want you to see as we begin tonight. It says, and who is sufficient for these things? Paul says, Who is worthy of the honor that Jesus gives? Paul says, which one of us is worthy to be in his victory parade? Who who among us is worthy to be called the fragrance of Christ? To be the fragrance of Christ to a living church and the fragrance of Christ to a dying world. Paul says out loud, I think, what some in the Corinth were maybe whispering. Like, is Paul worthy of this? Paul's not a real apostle. He's not one of the 12. 
Maybe Paul was self-appointed. Paul's not sufficient for these things. Perhaps they were comparing him to some of the hucksters who traveled in and about and through Corinth. Because look at verse, 15, verse 17 as we begin. He says, For we are not, as so many, peddling the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as of from God, we speak in the sight of God in Christ. Apparently, this was a problem in Corinth. We know that Corinth was the crossroads of the world. It was on this tiny isthmus. It was on a perfect place for trade. There were a lot of people passing through Corinth. There was a lot of money passing hands. And apparently, there are, were a lot of hucksters passing the plate. Because he says, for we are not as so many peddling the word of God. The word peddling there is kapileo. It means to be a retailer, to sell something for a sordid gain. It also meant, by the way, to corrupt, to water down, to adulterate. See, peddlers were in the habit of watering down their commodities so that they could gain more uh, per share. Right? If, if a peddler was selling wine and he watered down the wine a little bit, hey, that's, that's more profit for me. Apparently, then, in Corinth, there were men of God who would come into this town and they would take advantage of the church's very giving nature. They would water down the word. They would tell people exactly what they wanted to hear so that whenever they could, they would do an exorcism. Like, demon of money, come out of that man's pocket and into mine. Now, not a lot has changed, has it? There are still a lot of religious hucksters. So a lot of people that will look at God's flock and they will see a meal or a meal ticket. They are willing to make the Bible say whatever will bring in the sheep so that they can get to the fleecing or the feasting. They look at the sheep and they see a meal ticket. They see dollar signs. Jesus said, Matthew seven fifteen. Beware of those who walk around in a sheepskin suit. They look like other sheep, but, outward, but outwardly they do. But inwardly they are ravenous wolves. I saw an article this week. Uh, this is from uh, Kampala. Ugandan police are holding a, a Ghanaian preacher over a stage magic device they fear may dupe people into believing they have experienced miracles. Customs officials seize the electric shock device, which magicians use to give small electric shocks to volunteers from the prophet Obiri Yubawa at the airport last week. Um, basically, this guy has this electric touch device, and on the box it says, with a simple touch, make a fluorescent bulb glow on and off at your command. Make confetti move. Charge a spoon and watch it as it shocks a volunteer. Um, people could be duped to think that this is a miracle. Uh, they quoted the Civil Aviation Authority. And the, worst, the most tragic at the end, it says, officials are worried about the proliferation of miracle churches, miracles in quotes there, in Uganda, many of which claim to cure HIV and AIDS. Now, we've just been through a long series. We believe in miracles. We believe God can do uh, miracles and do great things. But what this man is doing is exactly what Paul's talking about. The, this idea of looking at the, the flocks and just wanting to fleece them. He says, verse 17, for we are not as so many peddling the word of God, but as of sincerity, 
But as from God, we speak in the sight of God in Christ. Y'all, this is what I believe is happening here. It's what I hope, I pray is happening here. That you are hearing, he says, but as of sincerity, as from God. That you're hearing sincere, simple truth, not watered down, not hyped up. You're hearing from God. That's what I pray every single time I stand before you. My desire is that it would be just as if God was speaking his word directly into your hearts. And he says, we speak in the sight of God in Christ. Now, that's a great way to make sure that that happens. See, Paul revealed how he kept his message pure, how he kept his message unadulterated. And that was his first audience. His main audience was God. Not like the peddlers of the word of God who would tailor their message to the uh, audience's itching ears. But he tailored his message to his audience, God, his very first audience. Above all else, Paul wanted to please his first and best audience, God. Have you thought about this? Right now, God is listening to me teach. Now think about that. On Sunday, we had a pastor from another church come and visit. I tried not to think about it. I wasn't too nervous. If we had another Calvary Chapel pastor come in, I'd be pretty nervous. If Billy Graham showed up, you might find me sitting underneath a table over there so that I didn't have to speak in front of Billy Graham. But really, that's really goofy, isn't it? Because every week, I speak... In the sight of God. In Christ. You guys are like, man, I'm glad I'm not you. Well, I got news for you. Every week, you speak in the sight of God. In Christ. What did you speak in the sight of God today? What did you speak in the sight of God this week? Was there anything that you'd be ashamed to say in front of Billy Graham? If you'd be ashamed to say it in front of Billy Graham, you might want to reconsider whether or not you should have said it in the sight of God. There's an application right there, of course, right? Spend the rest of today and all day tomorrow, every day that you think of it, with your main audience in mind. We're going to sing a song at the end tonight, Audience of One. It's a great song. As you walk through your day, that he would be a guard at your lips. Now, Paul has just distanced himself from the hucksters, right? He's declared his sincerity from God. Now we begin verse 1 of chapter 3. He says, Now do we begin again to commend ourselves? In other words, Paul says, "Uh, Oops, wait, have I started on my resume for you guys? Now some of the Corinthians, if they read that, they would be like, Man, I hope so. I have been waiting for Paul to just stand up for himself. I'm sure that's what some of the Corinthians were saying because they were all into boasting, into bragging. They would brag about Paul, his his people, and then the people from Apollos would, would say, oh, no, Paul's no good. It's Apollos that's the guy. Some of them, I'm sure, were saying, this is exactly what we've been waiting for, Paul, that you would begin to commend yourself, that Paul would finally step up and brag on himself a little bit. But look at verse 1. He says, do we begin again to commend ourselves or do we need, as some others... 
epistles of commendation to you or letters of commendation from you. Now, remember, again, the, the scene in Corinth was all of these hucksters coming, coming through town, just trying to take advantage of any uh, forgiving soul. Because of these hucksters, this was a very common thing, and it still is a common thing today. The letter of recommendation. Now, I still get these. I, I get emails from bands occasionally. Um, when your name is, is the pastor of a church, you will get emails from a band that says, hey, we're going to be in town. Would you like us to come play? If they're smart, they'll say, we just did a Calvary Chapel service last a couple weeks ago, and here's the number from the pastor where we were at. And that way, I could check it out, and I, I could see, I could call and say, hey, you know, were they for real? Were they interested in, in ministering to the people, or were they just interested in, in uh, fleecing the sheep? Let you in on a, a little thing I want to do sometime soon. There's a Calvary Chapel pastor from Utah who has developed a great presentation on how to protect your family from the dangers of the Internet. I think, man, that would be an awesome ministry that we could provide for the community. But the reason that I'm interested in it is because I belong to this email list server and the other pastors have posted glowing reviews about this pastor's heart and the effect of this presentation and how many people were blessed by it. See, that is today's letter of commendation. That's what Paul's talking about here. Paul wrote one for Tychicus. If you go through Ephesians, you'll see he says basically, hey, Tychicus is a good guy. You can trust him. If you remember, Paul wrote one, basically a short one, for Timothy at the end of chapter 1, of uh, the first letter from Corinth, to Corinth. He said, Timothy is my boy. He's coming. He does the work of the Lord just as I do. Take good care of him. Those were letters of condemnation, or (laughs) condemnation, that would be bad, commendation. That was just a part of life, and it still is a part of life then and now. But think about this. Look at verse 1. He says, do we begin again to commend ourselves or do we need, as some others, epistles of commendation to you or letters of commendation from you? Again, it wouldn't surprise me if there were professional ministers who came through Corinth and the very first thing they did was say, here, here's my letter of commendation. Look, I I have these people's support. And then the, the very last thing they did after they removed some of the funds from the church would be, hey, could you write me a letter so that I can take it to the next people? But imagine how humbling it would be if you're Paul. You started the church in Corinth. Before you came, there was no church in Corinth. You poured your life out into this church. Eighteen months you spent building this church. You have sent them letters stained with tears, pouring your heart out for them, And you still hear that people are wondering about your calling. They're wondering about your motives. So Paul says, look, guys, do I need a letter of commendation to you or a letter of commendation from you? He says, verse 2, this is great. You are our epistle written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Paul says, look, here's how I see it. I don't need a letter of commendation to you. And thank you, but I don't need even a commendation letter from you. He says, you are my letter of commendation. 
Verse 2, you are our epistle written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Paul says, whether you like it or not, Corinth, Corinthians, you are walking, talking letters of recommendation for me. He says, you were pagans living miserable lives apart from God. And now when people meet you, as messed up as you are, they still see there's a difference between you and them. People walk into Corinth and they go, now wait, I was here a few months ago and you're a lot nicer than you were. Why, why, why is this person over here so content, even though their life is just as messed up uh, circumstantially as ours? And they would say, oh, they go to that church that was started by that Paul guy. Now that's a letter of recommendation. Do you get it? I am so proud to know so many of you. I fear that we've only been doing this a couple years, two or two and a half years or so. I'm still not sure that um, some of you could be called a letter of recommendation for me. Because we, we haven't spent a lot of time together. Most of you guys were great people, good Christians before I met you. My prayer is that I don't mess you up, right? But if you, are, if you are not a better person from coming here faithfully five years from now, then that would say something about me, wouldn't it? would say something about the way that I teach or watering down the word or anything like that. Now, here's an application. Where are your letters of commendation? Let me put it this way. Who are you pouring your life into? Whose lives have you had a part of changing? If your parents, well, your kids, for sure. If you serve in children's ministry, my kids. You are pouring your life. You are writing a letter of commendation that someday will say, wow, they were great Sunday school teachers, right? Or hopefully their actions will say that. Can you point to someone, or hopefully more than one person, hopefully a whole bunch of people, who is a walking, talking letter of recommendation of your persistence, of your patience, of your compassion, of your mercy, of your prayerfulness, of all the things that Jesus is to you. Let me put it this way. When all is said and done, every plaque on your wall that says employee of the year or that says this is a certified doctor or a lawyer or a college graduate or a Pharisee or a pastor, none of that stuff really matters. In case you're wondering, my ordination, when it came, some of you guys were like, oh, I didn't even know if he was ordained. My ordination, when it came, came in this brown little thing. You know, it's like, came in the mail. Okay, there it is. It was definitely not a... It was not a big deal at all. And that's, that's pretty true. That My letters of commendation is not on a wall or in a display case. It's right here. When it's all said and done, all the stuff that's on your walls won't matter. Paul says, that's not the stuff I use to commend myself. It's the people that I've touched. It's the lives that I've ministered to. So the saints in Corinth, as messed up as they were, 
were a living epistle on Paul's behalf, but much more than that, it gets even better. Verse 3, clearly you are an epistle, not just of Paul, but of Christ, ministered by us. So these Corinthians were not only the living epistles for Paul's uh, commendation, they were the living epistles of Christ, and Paul had a hand in it. Actually, this would probably be a good way to describe it. You guys know, most of you, that there was such a thing called as an amuenesis. I don't say it well, but it's the guy who would write the, he would be the one who would hold the pen, the quill, and would actually write on the parchment. Like Paul had an amuenesis. And Paul would dictate it, and Timothy or somebody would write it for him. Paul said, look, maybe he was saying, I'm the amuenesis of Christ. Or probably even more specifically, he's probably saying, I'm the pen. I'm just the, the quill that Jesus used to write upon your hearts. We're going to see that in a second. Paul says, look, everywhere you go, people get an impression of me. But everywhere you go, even more so, people get an impression of Christ. Clearly, Paul says, you are an epistle of Christ. If you haven't heard it before... You can hear it now, and if you've heard it before, it's definitely worth repeating. You are the only Bible some people will ever read. You are the only Bible some people will ever read. Most people will not read this book that you value, that you treasure. They will not read it front to back. They may know a few verses, a few chapters. Most of the people that you meet, you are the Bible that they will read. How many times have you told your friends and your family, you said, look, the, the, the answers are in this book. Just read this book. It's so great. And they smile at you and they pat you on the head and they say, well, that's nice for you. You know, I'm really glad for you that you found something that works for you. But they don't read it. But they do watch you. You are a living epistle. And when they see you get cancer, or when they see you lose your job and they see the God of all comfort coming to your side who strengthens you, then what they do is they take that chapter of your life and they kind of, okay, I remember that. They file it away. And then when that same sort of trial overtakes them, suddenly you have a pulpit. Suddenly they will come to you and say, how did you get through this thing that I'm going through that you went before? And you say, it's Jesus. It's in this book. See, you and I, are, our lives are a living letter from Christ to the world around us. Your life is Jesus saying to the world around you, I love you. I will forgive you. I've prepared a place for you. Paul says, verse 3, clearly you are an epistle of Christ ministered by us. Paul says, Christ is the author. I'm the quill, and he's on a roll now. He says, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God. Paul says, it's the Holy Spirit is the one that leaves an impression on the writing surface. And that writing surface, he says, is not, verse 3, on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh. That is, of the heart. See, Paul is beginning a, a train of thought. Now that we, we're, we kind of put aside until Sunday, he's going to be comparing in the rest of this chapter the covenant of the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, with the New Covenant that is found in Jesus. The, the Ten Commandments were written on stone versus 
the new covenant that we find in Jesus that is written upon our hearts. Um, the Old Testament was a list of rules and regulations. The New Testament is a relationship with God of the universe. And it's made possible in Jesus. We're going to cover that on Sunday. Look at verse 4. He says, and we have such trust through Christ toward God. That's interesting. Paul has now claimed, this isn't the first time he's done it in this book. He has claimed them as his letter of recommendation. If you were going to have our letter of recommendation, would you choose the Corinthians? Knowing all that you know about them, or would, do you want to... Have them be your recommendation, your letter of recommendation. Paul looked at these guys and all the ways they fell short, but he called them a living an epistle, and he basically had to say, verse 4, look, I'm trusting God in this. I, I have to trust God. I trust that this will actually work out as a commendation to me, even though I see the life that you're living. Um, from the outside, Paul saw carnality, immaturity, all sorts of not good things. But he continued to call them saints. He said in chapter 1 or 2, I'm proud of you. I'm proud to be associated with you. And now he calls them his letters of recommendation. See, when Paul called these guys and he said all these good things about them, he had to have been living Philippians 1.6. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. In the day of Christ Jesus, he's like, I am trusting that this will be a good commendation for me at the end of all things. That's just another reminder. Again, when you see somebody blowing it, and when you don't distance yourself from them, but you, if you need to confront them, and if they're willing, you restore them, you are showing a trust, not in them, but in the God who saved them, who said... I will work out all things. I will bring this person into completeness in me. Look at verse 4 again. And we have such trust in the God. uh, Excuse me. We have such trust through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves. But our sufficiency is from God. What was the first question we asked tonight? Back in verse 16 of chapter 2. Paul said, who is sufficient for these things? Paul asked, who is worthy of the privilege of being in this parade? Who is worthy of writing letters on human hearts? Well, here's the answer. We find it in verse 4 and 5. Paul says, we trust that we have been made sufficient. Now, that almost sounds boastful. Almost sounds like he's prideful, but look, he says, verse 5, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God. Y'all, this is the formula for any great man of God, for any amazing man or woman to be used of God. Paul was like every great man of God that you can, you can find in, the, in the, the book. He was not sufficient in himself, but he had every confidence that God was sufficient. That God would provide everything that he needed so that he could get the job done. Think about it. The great men that come to mind in the Bible. Moses. What's your first impression of Moses? He's like, uh, Lord, send somebody else, please. Lord, I'm a really terrible speaker. 
he might have had a, a stuttering problem. He had some kind of speech problem. He's like, please, please, just send somebody else. And God said to him, who made your mouth? Don't you think I am able to let you speak in a way that will be commanding to those people who need to follow you? David. David was not a man confident in himself. He was a shepherd boy, but he was confident in God. He was the one who said, with my God, I can scale a wall. I can kill a lion. I can take on a thousand troops. That was, that's that combination of, look, I'm not trusting in myself, but my God is worthy. He is able to do all things. See, Paul was the same way. This is a great formula. If any one of us were to latch onto this in its full form, we could change the world around us. Paul was the same way as these guys. He was not confident in himself, but he was so, so confident in God to use him. See, most of us have one of two problems when it comes to verse 5. Either the first part of verse 5 is not true in our own estimation, or the second is not true. In our own estimation, either we, we look at that and we say not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves. Either we either we read that and we go, well, no, I wait a minute. I really am sufficient in myself. I, I really think I can do this. I, I'm really good at this. I'm really good at these things. That's the mistake some people make. But other people make the, the mistake of not believing in the second part, which is. Man, there's no question that I am not sufficient. I mean, I can tell you I am not sufficient. And then they say something like this, and God could never use me. I'm not sufficient. I'm not worthy. I, I, I can't be. I'm, I'm just, I'm not a good speaker. I'm embarrassed. I'm, I'm not faithful in these things. God could never use me. Well, you've just denied the last half of verse 5. Last week, remember Paul said, if you were here, he said, look, we're not ignorant of the devil's devices, of his strategies. And we talked about some of the strategies that he uses. One is um, letting sin in the camp and another is unforgiveness. But here's another couple right here. If he can, if Satan can, he will try to get you to serve God in your own power. He will try, he will convince you that, you know what, I can do this. I've trained all my life for this. I've done this and I've done this. This makes me qualified. I can do this. He will try to get you to do it in, in your own power. If that doesn't work or after you've tried and you've failed and life is really miserable for you, then you'll go to the other extreme and say, I can't do anything and God can't do anything with me. Both things are a device, a strategy of the devil. Jesus said, John fifteen five. I am the vine and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. He doesn't say works real hard and does all this stuff. He's like, if you abide in me and I abide in you, you will bear much fruit. But then he says, for without me, you can do nothing. So the Bible says without Jesus, you can do nothing. But it also says Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You get it? Both things are true. You can do absolutely nothing of value without Jesus empowering you to do it. On the other hand, you can do anything that God asks you to when Jesus is in it, when he strengthens you. 
You have to first settle the first part in your heart that you're not worthy. You can't do it. And then you also have to stir up the second part in your heart that God can do it. When we do, when we actually come to that equation, I can do absolutely nothing without him, but I can do anything with him. Then nothing is impossible. I mean, that's Paul's secret, right? He impacted the whole world. He is still impacting the world today. And it's because he said, look, I don't have any power on my own, but man, I know where to find that power. He says, not in me, but Christ in me, the hope of glory. That's my prayer for us tonight.